Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, it's not somebody uh, that we typically have on the show. Uh, this is an actual practitioner, and uh, his name is Mike. He's a principal ML engineer at PostClick, uh, which is an uh, basically an ad hosting uh, company that allows uh, bidding, I believe, um, and the Legendary. management of of ad placements. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. He wrote a blog post recently that we found, uh, that we found also very interesting. And uh, it's a way that, you know, presenting the idea that there's a struggle in the, the methodology that data scientists use to create their their work, uh, namely notebooks, and bridging that gap to what people consider to be uh, production-grade ML applications uh, that can be deployed and tested. And we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff today. And we're going to talk about a, an open source project that's out there uh, called LineaPy that aims to work on bridging this gap. And uh, we'll just have a fun discussion about all this stuff. Uh, it's near to, near and dear to my heart. It has been for years about this exact struggle uh, and how we can collectively as a community work towards uh, building tools that make this a little bit easier. So, Mike, please introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody what you do. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure being here. My name is Mike Aroff. I worked in machine learning engineers for a good part of the last decade in uh, companies of all sizes from large enterprises like Intuit and uh, Verizon to three people uh, startups. And all throughout my career, my particular kind of emphasis and passion was to avoid repeating yourself, to bring uh, repeated patterns and kind of disciplined engineering approach to data science and ML engineers, which currently is popularized and called ML ops. But I've been introduced pieces of this to different companies way before ML ops buzzwords was uh, coined and popularized. And uh, throughout the years, I found there is a big gap in MLOps methodology, which does not exist in the more general DevOps world. Uh, there is a, a lot of uh, development and standardization and tooling on the uh, engineering development side in the notebook, like Ben mentioned. And there's a lot of work being done to automate uh, CI/CD deployment, uh, managing versions of the code and uh, models, uh, testing, uh, monitoring uh, models in production. 
so on the uh, deployment in engineering and production production side there's a lot of uh, operational and uh, you know infrastructure as a call to work was done but there's not a lot uh, done to bri- to bring one to that to bridge that's why my blog was titled uh, a gap in ml ops tooling and this is what i chiefly going to be talking about today how we need to bridge this gap and what uh, processes and ideas are being developed and uh, introduced recently to help that. I want to emphasize that in the, in general uh, software engineering, DevOps methodology includes uh, puts a lot of attention to uh, moving development code to production. The uh, development environment and production environment, the uh, process of uh, writing a code and then committing and uh, infrastructure code uh, automatically uh, running tests and deploying it. This is a big part of the uh, GitOps, DevOps uh, methodology, and it's currently missing from MLOps. That's not true. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and it's something that any of us that have held that job title that you currently hold, uh, anybody that's been doing that, you know, if you start off in the data science world, as we were talking before we started the the recording, um, notebooks are awesome. You know, when you're doing data science work, when you're doing analytics work, uh, you mentioned, hey, you can visualize data frames, you can run an operation or write a simple function that's going to be manipulating that data frame and you can see how it's changed it, how it's mutated that data. Like, hey, I need to, you know, pivot this this table structure in order to, you know, give me additional data that I can then join to this other data set. I need to see it. I need to, to do that join and then see the table with my own eyes and not write some some test suite code that validates that the structure is what I want it to be because the notebook gives you the ability to just use your eyes and see right in front of you. Okay, that's what I want. Now I'm going to build a visualization and I want to see that visualization of the data in a, in a chart or a graph. And you can't really do that in an IDE. Um, and IDEs aren't really designed for that anyway. But as, as you said, IDEs are designed for traditional software engineering and deploying code and modularizing things. So in your experience, what other things do you see people using notebooks for and why do you think they're they're so useful? Well, I want to say that notebooks actually appeared way before Jupyter. It's been used in research in, in mathematics and science since uh, computer uh, uh, be- compute since computers become being used uh, in uh, mathematics and uh, and science in industry it's a relatively uh, new development by new means like a decade old uh, and it's uh, uh, kind of uh, come uh, come uh, to be used as the vo- vo- professions of data scientists as a word data scientist becomes widely used. And this is important because uh, uh, in ML development, it's 
critical to look at data and to find uh, uh, different ways to slice data to determine the features which are input to a model. It's important to uh, try different models and see which accuracy metrics you're going to get by, by trying it. And finally, once you select your model, you need to run optimization. You commonly call this hyperparameter optimization. You uh, try uh, different uh, parameters to, to the model and to see uh, what uh, gives you the best performance. Uh, so uh, there is a lot of uh, science elements. Uh, uh, that's why data science become the word that becomes important becomes popular uh, there is a lot of elements of uh, experimentation that you need to do before you actually come up with something that is good enough and then you put a stop to it and and then you're ready to put it into production and bring it to customers and make it to, uh, make it useful so if we're talking about bringing something to production and as an ML engineer, do you, if you're looking at a, a prototype notebook that, that a group of data scientists has worked on and you look at the notebook and you see, all right, there's, there's 30 visualizations in here. There's a bunch of, you know, hundreds of print statements to standard out. What do you look at in, in something like that that's given to you? to realize what needs to make it into the production code base and what can be left aside? So it's usually very, um, a, lot, a lot of it is usually very straightforward and repetitive and something that you do every time. You mentioned visualization. They're critical to determining uh, which data uh, are good features for the model and which models provide good output. But they are not usually, almost it's never useful in the production code because it's running the back end uh, and uh, creating those plots, uh, they are not, uh, they, they are useless, right? They, they're not going to be visible for anybody. There's no reason to run them. Uh, the print statements, uh, they need to be converted into the, whatever uh, cloud login we uh, the company is using to integrate it within their system. So while you are looking at the notebook, it's probably okay to just print statement. When you are running it, you probably want to save it in Splunk or the Datadog or some other login systems that uh, data stack using. So you need to replace login, uh, your printing statement by login statement. You need to remove the, a lot of visualizations there, uh, in addition, there are a lot of uh, cells in the notebook which uh, turned out to be failed experiments or just uh, uh, something that people run to get to the final answer. They don't affect the production code at all. So you need to identify that this is a piece of the code that doesn't produce anything useful, uh, doesn't produce any useful artifacts. That the, So you ignore them and only use the ones that need uh, that, that produce artifacts and pieces of code and data that are needed to get a final answer. Uh, and then you need to take all of this and 
the next step, it's a bit of more of an art, computer science art. Rather, uh, so, far, so far, it's all very, very, very mechanical and very standard. Um, monkey can do this. But the uh, next step is to uh, when you get to actual code uh, pieces and artifacts, you need to uh, organize it into a good modular code in classes, functions, uh, in services. Uh, finally, you need to add a lot of boilerplate uh, system codes to integrate it into what, wherever you are hosting it, which is typically either yep. um, the um, services like uh, uh, Flask, uh, uh, Open API, or some other kind of uh, model serving code. It could be the um, uh, server like uh, uh, MLflow or some other ML platforms like SageMaker where you serve your code. So you need to add additional uh, APIs and codes for this particular model serving code. Or if it runs as a batch, you need to add uh, code for batch processor. Um, it could be uh, uh, Apache Airflow or it could be something uh, more specialized for ML. Uh, like again, MLflow, or uh, it could be AWS Batch, or something that runs your code on a schedule or run it as a service. Mm-hmm. Those systems require additional uh, setup, settings, uh, uh, and basically boilerplate code. Once you add it, then you commit it into your uh, code repository, and uh, then your uh, CICD picks it up and deploys it, and then you're done in principle. And then you go back, take a nice notebook, and you do it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking from personal experience uh, on this this front, when handed over a, a notebook uh, in the past, I've seen some that are relatively trivial to convert. Uh, you know, the person that, that did the notebook almost approached it in a an object oriented design like paradigm. They're like, all right. They know that eventually, you know, code is going to be refactored. So this will probably be a method in a class or there's going to be some sort of object that's encapsulating this this functionality. So they write a function that is fairly well designed and has a, a single purpose to it. It's not, you know, the, the meta functions that, that sometimes you see. And... When you get one of those, you're like, all right, the refactoring isn't going to be that bad on this. Like they're, they're already reusing this function 17 times throughout this, this code base and making my life easier. But then sometimes you get those notebooks that are, uh, you look at a single cell and it's script. And you're like, hang on a second. There's 137 operations happening within this cell. And this this one six line block of code is copied 50 times throughout the notebook, uh, but just slightly modified each time. How do you go about the process? Like you said it was an art, uh, which I 100% agree with, that art of refactoring, something like that. Uh, how painful is that for you when you get something like that? Uh, well, uh, the painful is actually something that... Uh, less of a concern, uh, w- w- was historically less of a concern for me than routine. Uh, it's, uh, 
when you get something that requires a lot of work, well, that's a fact of life, right? Uh, and uh, part of it will uh, is a learning experience for me and my data science partner to write more modular code, not to write a hundred cell notebook or uh, which looks like a messy spaghetti code. Part of it is educational part, and there's a, lo- a lot of people in ML engineering world that believe that just write a better notebook uh, code. But there, uh, I want to point attention, uh, point to the repetitive and routine parts of it. So when uh, which is not solved by education, uh, that uh, there are pieces that you need to do all the time, and you cannot really avoid it by writing better notebook. Sure, you can write a good, right. well-formatted. You can add a lot of documentation. Notebook actually very good at, at that's one of the advantages. They they make a good uh, self-documented uh, uh, documenting code. That's very uh, that's advantage. But um, you can't avoid the fact that you are actually having n disjoint pieces of code which needs to be taken and put into a structure of uh, classes and models. Uh, no matter how well right. your original code is designed, you still need to copy paste, put it there. You need to. You're still gonna have blocks of code uh, and cells which were just uh, part of exploration and uh, experimentation and no need to go to production. All of this uh, routine and repetitive things, we'll need to do over and over and over again. And when I done it uh, for hundreds of uh, notebook, uh, I, I was naturally thinking that I got to find a way to automate it. And I was thinking about building automated part of it. Uh, not to mention that uh, boilerplate part. This is something that uh, at the end, right? So when when you get a broken uh, Python code that you can just execute by something, uh, my uh, converted notebook.py, right? Uh, that's not the end of the story. You need to take this uh, uh, Python models and, and insert it into something that will run it on a schedule in a production page system. Uh, Airflow would be the good example of it for batch systems. It's popular and uh, uh, used in many kind of uh, smaller companies. And uh, then there are uh, more specialized ML platforms. Uh, Kubeflow comes to mind uh, uh, that uh, uh, and others, but they all require additional uh, libraries and uh, code and systems that you need to put there. It's all pretty standard stuff. Um, for to create Airflow DAGs, you need to uh, do uh, import uh, Airflow DAG and write, uh, write a bunch of standard settings for Airflow DAGs, which uh, uh, have to be done every every time every time you productionize this new analytics or ML project from the notebook. So the repetitive and routine is the one that was getting to me far more than uh, co- complexities. And uh, that's incidentally something that is easier to automate and put into the um, you know computer systems. Uh, that uh, while uh, computers are very difficult to uh, do art, well, right. recently they've been uh, m- m- making hardways there as well. But generally... 
um, we can't replace a good computer ar architect or computer scientist with this machine yet, but uh, uh, make in uh, uh, standard repetitive manipulations like uh, copy this code uh, and save at this uh, standard uh, piece, uh, piece of boilerplate code and then uh, package it together and run the command to deploy. All of this is something that we could uh, let computer scripts and automation uh, do. And this is something that I was uh, increasingly aware and uh, was looking for a problem, uh, for a way to solve it. And uh, without finding anything on the market to help uh, me with that, I started building something of my own. Uh, I called it uh, uh, Notebook uh, Airflow uh, Doug Factory. Mousefall and very, very uh, kind of... That's how an engineer would call uh, products. But uh, it's... Uh, uh, to, in my mind, this was good description of what I was doing technically by taking Notebook, converting it to Python code, and then using Doug Factory to create Airflow Doug out of it. So you take Notebook uh, in the uh, beginning, delete a lot of uh, uh, useless, from production point of view, uh, right. stuff from it, uh, like um, plots, because uh, it generate plots, or uh, comments that uh, need to be converted into uh, um, the login statements and all this standard stuff, uh, adding uh, airflow tags and ports, etc., and producing something that we could uh, uh, that, that that we could, could run by airflow on a schedule on a like daily, weekly, hourly basis, and uh, have a uh, broken production system. Uh, so, uh, about two years ago, that's I had this idea and starting, uh, you know, hacking away and building this system. This is what eventually uh, kind of uh, turned into uh, LinearPy open source project, which we were uh, going to talk about later. So but, you're taking a, a notebook and looking at cell-based boundaries when you import the raw text of that and then encapsulating each of those cells as a function and then decorating that function so that it can be accessed by Airflow. So the uh, it's close. Uh, more precisely, we will. Uh, uh, I was uh, basically converting notebook uh, entirely into Python. Mm -hmm. There, are, there is uh, facilities in Jupyter for uh, called NB Convert that can yep. do it, but it does not produce. Uh, 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 it, uh, it produces a really what what I what best described as one-to-one -one translation. It uh, uh, preserves all those uh, unnecessary uh, print statements and uh, the um, going-nowhere plot code. And it uh, even uh, converts the cell uh, numbers, so one, two, three, four, into comments saying, this is cell three. Yeah. Obviously, in Python code, this makes sense. So it uh, does a very, very literate translation, if you will. Uh, and it produces a one flat Python file. 
There are a lot of limitations, and you cannot really run it in production right away. Right now. But that was a starting code. I uh, added additional, uh, overloaded the processors inside NB Convert to uh, split it into pieces and uh, with a defined function. Drop the one that don't have defined functions. That would be the pieces where we just plot something that didn't go anywhere. That was just an intermediate step for people to look at the code. And uh, then finally, it was adding the uh, Airflow uh, DAG uh, components to it automatically from the template, uh, from GG template. Uh, uh, And uh, that's why it was a, a kind of converter to uh, da- uh, to Airflow DAG. Uh, I used Airflow DAG because at the time the uh, company that I was used Airflow DAG for all of their scheduling. It's, uh, so, right. But I could use any sort of production uh, deployment systems uh, for that. Um, so that's what I've uh, built, uh, working on the side for a few months. Uh, mostly as a way to automate my own drudgery, but mostly to avoid <laughs> doing the same thing for every new notebook that came uh, in my way. And uh, as it was a project done on the side uh, by one person out of necessity, it was very hacky, very kind of... Uh, um, specialized code not ready to be uh, shared and uh, distributed to other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, I've met uh, a couple of uh, people from uh, uh, Berkeley who were, had the same idea and building similar tooling. And uh, we come up with a linear pi, uh, 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 which would become a linear pi project, an attempt to build this for general use. Nice. So it, with this approach, you could technically just write a template factory for any execution engine. You could say, hey, I want to run this with Bazel as my, my uh, orchestrator. You know, if you have infrastructure like that, um, and then it would just say, "All right, I need to assemble th- these code artifacts into a logical, you know, instruction set of I'm going to first load my data in, and then I'm going to save my data after doing feature engineering to location A on object store somewhere in the cloud, and then my next operation is going to be, you know, maybe cell seven through thirty-seven and cell forty-two, forty-three, and forty-four." are the next operation things that I need to do. So that's my next DAG that's going to execute. And then I'm going to save the results of that off. So it it kind of forces data scientists to think about potentially reproducibility in a production code base, where if you're storing artifact stages all along the way in production, you could go back and say, hey, we have a scheduled job that's retraining once every two weeks and we think there was an issue six weeks ago if you're storing the artifact stages the outputs of each of these DAGs you could directly go back and investigate right yes uh, both of us mentioned word artifact in the, uh, many times 
And this is really core of the approach we are taking here. And uh, it's really not a, a unique thinking for of me or uh, Doris, that's the founder of uh, the uh, Linear Pi. Uh, this is something that's been uh, practiced by all ML development teams that uh, in order to save, the uh, to bridge this gap in practice without having the proper tooling, what people were organizationally doing is uh, asking data scientists to provide artifacts for software engineering teams to include into their production systems, whether it's they're using uh, the, some dark scheduler airflow or they used uh, um, any sort of cloud uh, application pla- platform, Firebase or uh, Data breaks might be the and any anywhere anything where they run uh, analytics or the uh, you know software stack. So uh, they usually looked at give us the artifact and they insert it in our production system. That's what usually a mantra people do. This is a logical continuation uh, that okay. So how do we get artifacts out of the notebook? Uh, what, how we define artifacts in the notebook? and how we extract it and package it to be used in production. And uh, these were a lot of repetitive work by uh, human, ML enge- typically ML engineers, but data scientists could learn this themselves. If they, once they have enough uh, you know, engineering uh, knowledge, uh, regardless of who it is, it's a lot of uh, human uh, thing, uh, work that can be automated by basically identifying artifacts in the co- in, uh, in notebook and saving them. Now, what is artifact? Artifacts usually come in three uh, categories. There is a model, a serialized model. That's an artifact. So in pickle file or... Uh, PyTorch file, TensorFlow file, uh, file basically a trained model in some binary serialized form. That's an artifact. Then there are usually data that uh, features that come into the input of this model. Those are also artifacts, whether the actual uh, database uh, object or SQL code to produce them. Right. Finally, there is a code that needed to be to glue all of this together. Those are also artifacts. And when you get uh, get all the three categories of artifacts, model, features, and the code together, you effectively uh, get in a productionalized code. Uh, With lineage. Uh, yeah. Uh, you yes. know exactly what the state of everything was to produce that exact instance of execution. Yes, you can do, do versioning of these artifacts, all of them, code versioning, data, uh, data versioning, and uh, then uh, you know exactly what you can swap, you can experiment, you can do A-B testing on them, a lot of things you can do with uh, artifacts that you generated. But uh, essentially production of the strict class of artifact is what we want to automate. And this is what uh, this new bread of tooling helps. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. 
If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned really resonated with me with regards to this concept of artifacts and how you said, well, data scientists that gain enough engineering skills might be able to do some of this stuff. And I just thought back to uh, something I was working on a couple of months ago, which was uh, on the pure engineering side, serialization format changes when Python is upgraded. Uh, if you're using Pickle and you save it in Python 3.7, now the production system is now uh, upgraded to Python 3.9, where the Pickle protocols have changed. So you can no longer load that, that serialized artifact uh, through Pickle or even Cloud Pickle. It just blows up. It's like I don't understand what this serialization format is. So with the nuances that a software engineer understands from like, okay, I know that this is going to have to migrate to a different you know, ecosystem and there's going to be you know, non-backwards compatible breaking changes sometimes and we need to keep this around for potentially years. So I now have to write my own serialization, deserialization protocol, which in, you know, goes from taking a, a Python object or a, a Java object and writing that, that serializer. They're like, hey, I'm going to be parsing the, you know, doing a, a dir or a var on this object and I'm getting all of the attributes associated with it. And then I need to base 64 and code all of that stuff. Uh, so that it, it can be safely stored as a byte array. Do you think that sort of activity is just a little too far to expect for most data scientists who are specializing in other areas? Like, should ML engineers and software engineers ever expect a data scientist to know how to do that? Um, what you're describing is... Uh probably not part of the skills expected from data scientists. And even ML engineers should not normally have to uh, write uh, a serializer. And uh, it's uh, usually picking up the correct version 
so, uh, uh, solves the problem that you are describing. It's particular, but uh, uh, um, uh, auto, uh, automation that we are talking about of notebooks to code helps to keep versions of self because uh, configuration like uh, versioning of of packages in particular serializing is also uh, part of the artifacts like uh, right. your uh, requirements the txt that's definitely artifact that needed uh, as a part of what we or do, even docker file generating a docker file is a proper version of things you install it uh, th- those are different, definitely things you need to, to to build it and deploy it in 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 whatever your production system is, and uh, you need to use the correct version of Python, uh, correct version of the pickle file or the job uh, job lib, uh, uh, whatever you're using it. So tracking and it. it it becomes even far more untraceable problem when talking about uh, uh, deep learning things like uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch. There's a whole uh, uh, lot of other. It's, it's, it's far more complex and far more important to keep the correct uh, versions. I've seen problems when you uh, install nightly version of uh, PyTorch and it stops reading your uh, computer vision models that uh, trained for weeks. I've seen uh, that sort of, sort of thing happening and keeping track of the uh, versions of your software is a big part of uh, the DevOps methodology in general and MLOps methodology in particular. Yeah, there's no greater pain that I have faced when dealing with maintaining production ML uh, software stacks than what you just described. It's like, hey, we didn't pin our versions uh, of what we used when we trained this thing, and now there's a breaking change that re- was just released with, you know, a minor version or a major version was was just released of some major package and now everything's broken because uh, it's just like the pip install is getting the latest version uh, of this, this stack. And then you try to walk that back and say, okay, what version were we using when this trained? Okay, we'll pin that. And then you realize that all the other dependencies have, have also updated with breaking changes to that older version that you, you, you were using because uh, for the vast majority of, of use cases that are out there, uh, and in the way PyPy is is structured in general, you can't do patches to PyPy. When you release a version, it's there forever for all time. Uh, there's no take backsies, uh, so you can you can do a micro version patch fix. Um, so I think nobody understands how important version locking things are until it blows up in their face in the real world. And then they realize, oh, geez, we really should have been looking at this or, or handling this. So in addition to the, the version requirements uh, that you mentioned with, you know, if you want to do a brute force, you can just do pip freeze and save that off. And now you have your exact, you know, development environment that was used. Uh, what are some other metadata that's really important to capture when we're talking about moving into a, a production deployment? Well, there's uh, 
the versions, the numbers of hyperparameter that you need, uh, that you created to, when you come up with doing experimentation with the, with the best model. So it's also important. Uh, the uh, actual what what, uh, what versions of the model uh, file we, we, we tried uh, how many uh, which data we uh, we run it so that, but those are actually fallen into a general these three sections there's a data artifacts there's input features there is a and the code to to produce it there is a code to there, there, there is a model artifact and the corresponding uh, uh, code that glued this together including versions of the dependent packages and then there is a, something that uh, things like linear pi uh, uh, do for you and uh, your uh, without it, you have to do it manually, is to trace dependencies throughout your notebook. Uh, so you, uh, uh, your artifact may depend on other artifacts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, by itself not go, don't produce anything useful for, the, uh, for your model in production. They don't produce your um, result, right? The, 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 the output. Uh, like your score, classifiers, whatever, whatever it is the output, but they are important uh, as an intermediary because other uh, artifacts that are producing uh, important value, they depend on it. So dependencies between artifacts need to be traced, yep. and this is something that uh, you can see by looking at which variables. Uh, uh, your let's say your cell has a, a dependency on the data frame which was generated five cells before. So the, the code from five cells needs also to, to be saved and, and included. Uh, otherwise, your code will break because it doesn't have dependencies. dependencies. So uh, linkage between the data, uh, uh, between artifacts is important. Uh, hence, uh, uh, in order to do it correctly, you need to actually know how uh, um, kernel, which is Python interpreter inside uh, uh, Jupyter, uh, uh, handles um, data in memory and uh, which uh, data objects are connected. And uh, uh, hence, uh, they are part of the execution dependency graph. Mm -hmm. So you can extract from the IPython kernel all of that information. Correct. Well, that's, uh, that was uh, something that was missing in my kind of hacky vizier. And this is something that uh, uh, current uh, open source uh, general availability linear pi actually has. It, uh, it tracks dependencies on all the uh, artifacts uh, in memory inside kernel and it dumps it into your uh, artifacts that. Uh, it then packages into uh, Airflow or the uh, Perfect or Databricks or general Python uh, Flask services. So the list goes on of how we can run it in production. Yeah, and that's really the, the miraculous aspect of the open source package 
uh, of Linea Pi is the fact that it's delving into. I mean, it, it's it's great because it's solving this this struggle that a lot of people have. Uh, it's saving a lot of time that people who would have to manually do this. Uh, I mean, it, it's not fun work when you're you're just building boilerplate and orchestration. Uh, and it, like you said, it is incredibly repetitive. It's not creative. It's it's just structured work that you need to get done to get this thing into production. But those internal that internal functionality is non-trivial to implement on your own. If you're evaluating a notebook and you're like, hey, well, I can just figure out what this lineage is of object references by, you know, looking at the code. It's not always as intuitive as that. Um, you know, there's notebooks that. I'm sure both of us have seen, I know that I've seen, that are hundreds and hundreds of cells, you know, tens of thousands of lines of script in a notebook. And working through that and finding, okay, is there variable reuse here? Are they like using the same name of something and it's changing its objects, you know, allocation and memory? Uh, that's really tricky to, you can't just, you know, search a notebook and be like, oh, well, all of these are defined correctly and they're all referenced the same objects. There's, there's no guarantees. Um, so going into the kernel and getting those relations um, and actually accessing, you know, the actual hash map memory table of like, these are the object references that are still used. Um, that's, that's pretty powerful. And yeah, I think that's what sets it apart from other other implementations that are out there. So you did mention it's open source. So how many outside contributors do you have to the projects and how many would you like to have? So uh, it's been released to open source just a couple of months ago. So it was very new. Um, I at the moment we only have a handful of outside uh, contributor, uh, and we don't even have any formal uh, kind of collaborations or the um, steering committee of any anything. Uh, it, it's uh, a small uh, ten-person company, Slinapai, that uh, write uh, model code. Uh, I uh, I'm their startup advisor and contributor, so I, uh, you can say me as <laughs> outside contributor because I'm not like uh, officially owning up my stuff, uh, but I do kind of believe and, and help and, and collaborate. But there is no, uh, we definitely want a lot of people to 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 use it, try it on uh, yeah. for their problems. Uh, I have to be honest at this moment, because it's effort of a very small number of people, and it's very difficult problem to generalize to all sorts of. Uh, uh, to all, to all. It's a problem that everybody solves uh, on their own turf in their own uh, company, own project, including me in PostClick. Right. But it's a very difficult problem to generalize uh, to um, a, as a tool applicable for everybody as anybody who worked on the infrastructure and tooling 
will attest that it's a it's a big big jump from yes. building something that uh, is uh, to, uh, tuned for you to open sourcing it and uh, producing it for everybody. So uh, I encourage everybody to to to, uh, to use it to try to see uh, um, communicate the gaps and uh, actually contribute and uh, and add features there. Uh, and uh, uh, if any, if I make any point, any message during the, uh, this uh, conversation, is that uh, this is a very uh, important problem that's been largely overlooked by uh, MLOps development community and uh, big companies. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, development on leaps, leaps and bounds in the notebook uh, uh, side, uh, starting from Jupyter itself, becoming much, much more powerful, much more feature-rich every day to uh, new kind of notebooks like DeepNote or KX or uh, notebooks inside uh, cloud environments. Uh, IDs have better and better notebook support. On the other side, production, like running ML in production, again, the tooling become much, much more uh, advanced uh, and uh, effective. This kind of translation, there is not a lot of work to do. It, and uh, Linear Pi is, uh, is just a small uh, uh, team building um, a project from start. So uh, it'll, uh, it takes a lot, it takes a village, it takes a lot of effort to, to uh, and there's a, a lot of room to improvement. Uh, and uh, you just need more, att more, more, more attention and more work and more creative mind from different uh, engineers to uh, build uh, linear pi and similar tools uh, th that uh, will, may, will be amplifying uh, effect on ML engineers, ML ops, and data scientists in this way. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And that that bridge translation, also known as uh, what I what I see as a Rosetta Stone between pure data, you know, data scientists and statisticians or physicists, the way that they work and how they they need a notebook to do what they do in order to be efficient. And then from the engineering side, you definitely don't ever want to schedule that notebook in production. There's going to be a lot of modifications that need to happen to get it to be within the structure, format, testability, and uh, deployment state that you know your production code requires uh, for your company, uh, that becomes that actually can create an additional problem that I think tools like Linea Pi and you know however other people are thinking about you know working on on things similar to that. Um, without that bridge, that gap is actually a lot deeper than what most people realize. That chasm between those two, you know, implementation or, or working methodologies, because data science code is not like standard software. It's not something that's static. Uh, I mean, standard software isn't static. You know, you make updates to it all the time. Except as you said. There's the DevOps tooling stacks that people use that makes that process so much easier and so much safer. You know, you can 
you know, create a branch, fire off a PR, run your unit test, you know, have the CI system run unit and integration tests, make sure that you're not breaking anything with that code change and that, you know, you, what you're pushing is the feature that you want or the, the bug that you're, you're trying to fix is actually fixed. And you can safely know that, okay, the system is operating as it was intended to operate um, and you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to automatically degrade in two weeks. Well, data science code does. Models fall apart. They need to be retrained. Features need to be added. Features need to be removed. There's modifications that need to happen. It's not just, hey, I'm going to retrain this thing statically and schedule retraining. You know, there's a, a serious art to data science that needs a bit of creativity and modification. So when you have to do that modification, in today's paradigm, data scientists are used to working in notebooks. ML engineers and and software engineers are used to working in IDEs. That code is probably not that similar anymore from what the data scientists originally created to what software engineers built. So a tool like LinearPy by bridging the gap between those two, it means that the data scientists can modify their code without having to learn object-oriented programming and systems design and understand, you know, truly advanced software engineering techniques where, you know, your model pipeline that you built, that might have been abstracted into, you know, six different modules within a code base. And you're using abstract base classes, you know, how many times do data scientists build those and use those? It's, it's like ancient Greek to most data scientists. They don't, they don't need to know how the sausage is made in their ML you know, toolkit that they're using from open source. They just need to know the application of that public-facing API. So the idea of a tool like this excites me because it's allowing for that Rosetta Stone. of Like, hey, we can actually both work on this. Ben, here I would like to actually um, maybe emphasize something that uh, uh, automation in general is very uh, does not uh, replace education. And uh, 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 so, uh, what you touched that uh, many data scientists uh, don't have experiences, abstract uh, classes or uh, nuances of polymorphism, object-oriented programming, and generally may not have a training and experience of a, a computer scientist and an experienced software uh, uh, data engineer. But the Argue the, the 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 answer to this that many many people in CSUIT everywhere will say well teach them right or hire the right data scientists find right data scientists have engineering experience and uh, but I have to say that even if uh, people actually can do the, the job and have the knowledge that does not mean that they are not making mistakes when they do it every day day in and out and do it manually right. Uh, I, uh, right. When we talk about this uh, uh, handoff of artifacts from notebooks to production, uh, that uh, could be one person doing it. Like I did myself when I actually built the entire ML system mm-hmm. all on my, my own. That was problem in a smaller scale, like zero to one projects, right? Uh, uh, then uh, the person on both sides who who, who, who who doing notebooks and modeling and person who actually production is the same person. He knows he, what they're doing, but right. 
he's still human and he still can, he or she can still make uh, errors and mistakes and automation saves them to bring analogy yes. uh, we i could i would point on the another popular brand of software uh, uh, productivity enhancers that currently uh, code gener- uh, generators uh, com- uh, git uh, hub uh, copilot uh, is making splash which is very popular I actually love it. I use it every day. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, I'm bad uh, coder and don't remember the, the the pieces that it suggested. No, <laughs> it, it uh, helps me to uh, avoid small minor bugs and mistakes that uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, break pr- uh, production every day and uh, causes uh, money and time and reputational damage. Uh, it's uh, uh, very unlikely that they will uh, that uh, the uh, Google, uh, GitLab Copilot will have a, you know a, a comma mistakes there or uh, some typo, right? And this is a value proposition of those automation things. They are not helping people uh, who don't know uh, how to write the recursive functions, right? They help people who make silly mistakes and write recursive functions day in and day out. And this is the uh, value of uh, proposition of all automation tools, including linear pi. And uh, the way I would see it in a long, long time, long, long future, we are not nowhere near there. Uh, I would see convergence of uh, uh, code generator and uh, morphing of uh, li- uh, tools like LinearPy in the architecture generator. So uh, uh, if you think uh, what I was describing, you as extracting artifacts, refactoring, if you uh, think of what uh, this process is doing, it's architecting software. Right, it's a mm-hmm. job of software architect. We take uh, pieces of code, we keep them, uh, put them at the models, we add this uh, com- uh, boilerplate from uh, the execution systems, uh, execution agents, which is again part of the uh, architectural considerations. Whether we use the uh, Airflow, whether we use uh, uh, Databricks, whether we use uh, something else, uh, uh, how it's going to be deployed. All of these are architectural considerations, and uh, ultimately. It's gonna be. Uh, I can envision uh, something like uh, AI-assisted architect, AI architect that would uh, take your code and suggest you uh, a more optimal way to to group it, to architect it. Interesting. Uh, That's a fascinating idea, actually, where you could get almost like a Terraform template that's generated based on code inspection and data volumes and say, hey, this first part, you just need this really small VM to run this part. And then this next part, that's hyperparameter tuning. You have 10,000 iterations here because this is production grade and it's a complex algorithm that you're trying to tune. Let's parallelize that for you. And we'll run that on you know, 60 different VMs and we'll have a command and control you know." primary node that's basically a Ray head node. And we're going to run this in Ray and we're going to get all the, the results back um, from a, a barrier execution mode standpoint and use that to, to populate the, the next phase of iterations. And then for deployment, it can you could maybe pass in or say, hey, 
this is how many users I have. This is how often they're going to be hitting this API. And then it spins up or configures the Kubernetes deployment with, you know, traffic allocation uh, to handle the REST requests. That's pretty cool. Um, right now, I know for a fact, uh, having built many of those, that is a very manual process uh, and very error prone from the perspective of efficiency, uh, of making sure that, hey, we're not allocating too many machines to this task. Uh, and we've optimized this to a point where we're sitting at 80% CPU utilization and 70% memory utilization uh, instead of, hey, we're we're ooming containers out or we're spilling the disk in, you know, spark, you know, it's, it's tricky. It requires a lot of experience to figure all that out. So I, for one, am excited if there's going to be a, a tool that somebody out there is going to build, that's going to look at cloud deployment services and infrastructure and also inspect the code to, and the data to understand what might be involved in that. Maybe that's your next, uh, next open source idea, man. Uh, Let me know when you file the PR for it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, I was trying to point, uh, paint a picture of long-term vision and show yes. that there's a lot of very ambitious work d d done there. There is not just data optimization you described. There's also code optimization. There's a uh, caching, right? Uh, it's a very common uh, thing that uh, you take a function that's being used there and you add a uh, last, uh, last recent use uh, cache uh, on top of it. That's a common optimization that a good engineer will do almost without thinking. This is something that uh, is not uh, automatic. It needs to be, but it can be. If we uh, know the execution graph of the code and uh, we, we have this information inside the kernel, we can figure out which uh, function calls million times and add uh, other requests or uh, decorator on top of it. That's uh, very, very obvious. And there are tons of such things that we could do automatically. And that's next uh, step. Uh, I have uh, once again, linear pi is nowhere near th there, and it's probably going to take more than one uh, small team. With, uh, as you said, maybe different um, uh, kind of open source projects or uh, the different uh, commercial tool. Uh, it, it's uh, there's a lot of room to make it uh, to this vision I described of the uh, AI architect, almost uh, like mm -hmm. AI code architect. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, exciting and it takes a lot of people and of effort uh, on uh, more immediate roadmap on the linear um, pie is something much more mundane and less ambitious uh, called testing. And this is an, another thing that we did not touch. And this is also an important thing. That uh, and it's also something that every software engineer or every uh, in general, NML engineer in particular, needs to do. And uh, it also feels like a, a, a kind of necessary evil and a routine exercise of you know discipline for us. I add the functions. I need to write a unit test. Uh, so the most immediate and obvious thing that uh, uh, we add in 
and this is actually uh, the the feature that linear pi is building right now. Uh, uh, there's still a lot of gaps. It's 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 in the works. Is adding uh, uh, the generating unit and system tests for this notebook as a new nice. fourth kind of artifact. As, uh, to repeat, there is a code. There is a, a code dependencies, code installations requirements. There is a um, uh, artifacts, uh, uh, artifacts like a model, and there is a data artifact. There is a fourth category that is just being added, and it's obvious it's, uh, it's test. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a separate uh, series of artifacts, and they're generated the same way. When you know, when you know uh, what code goes into production, you can generate boil, boilerplate uh, or like skeleton uh, tests. Mm-hmm. Currently, the engineering team in Nepal couldn't figure out how to make them actual Vulcan tests. So it's a skeleton right now that's being generated that uh, humans still add, needs to put the right uh, kind of uh, code to, uh, uh, to call the mock uh, data snapshots on which to run the test. Uh, um, but uh, uh, it's currently the Vulcan again. Uh, any anybody who uh, is interested uh, can contribute with code or ideas or uh, just uh, you know trying it on testing the testing mode. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right? Where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. And it's an, a 
like you said, it's an important thing that people that handle production software definitely focus on. I mean, sometimes it, it's, as you said, it, it can seem mundane. Um, but anybody that has to has to be on pager duty alert uh, appreciates tests quite a bit. Um, in fact, that's how I'm spending the rest of my day today is writing some tests for a new feature. And yeah, it takes some time and it is a lot of boilerplate a lot of times where you're just like, hey, I'm, I'm basically doing the same thing 17 times here uh, and just tweaking a couple of different logical to, you know, things that I need to test here and having that generated for you uh, can save you some time and also be a reminder as well. Be like, hey, don't forget to do this. Like, you know, don't don't ignore your code coverage tests because that feature that you're not that you're implementing right now that you didn't bother to test that could be the thing that blows this up in production and makes everybody wonder what's wrong with the data science team or the ML engineering team like why did this broken code get shipped so it's it's very important but hey Mike it, it was an absolute pleasure to talk through with Lenny and Pi uh, like how it was how it was designed you know what it does and it was a great talk on uh, on notebooks and production code uh, so before we leave um, how can people get in contact with you how do they find out more about linea pi and uh, is there anything else you want to leave us with so uh, you uh, you can contact me at uh, uh, you can find me on linkedin it's uh, Mike Erv. You can uh, get uh, to email mike.erv at gmail.com. Uh, so uh, this, I assume this podcast will have my contact info there. So I'm happy to get any uh, request. Uh, uh, we'll be adding link to GitHub uh, repo for Linear Pi and they have a page as well uh, there, so that you could, uh, I encourage to, uh, to, uh, to scout, contribute, learn, and even build a competitive project. I, uh, as, I, uh, as I said, the fact that nobody, to my knowledge, building something like this is not a competitive advantage for linear pie, but rather a miss for the entire industry, right? It's a, uh, it's an important piece, and it's definitely something that uh, a small team uh, and one uh, one uh, repo cannot fully satisfy and solve. But it, I believe it's a great start. It's an important uh, thing. So go, uh, download, uh, uh, use send feedback, join Slack channel, and, um, uh, you know, let's uh, make life of uh, ML ops and ML engineers and data scientists, uh, practitioners everywhere, easier and more productive. Awesome. Great recap. And uh, once again, it was a pleasure. And uh, it was thank you, everybody, for tuning in. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we'll catch you next week with uh, another guest. I've been your host, Ben Wilson, and see you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.